Well, we return to the book of Acts this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can begin moving towards the New Testament and uh, Acts chapter 9. Two weeks ago, we were in the very beginning of Acts chapter 9. We're going to spend our time in the middle of that chapter today and specifically reading verses 19 through 31 in just a few minutes ago. If you weren't with us, or maybe you do recall from two weeks ago you were with us, two weeks ago uh, we joined with Saul, also known as Paul, on his way to Damascus, and his purpose in heading to the city of Damascus was to destroy followers of the way, the, the very first name of Christians. He was on his way to destroy the lives of Christians, unbeknownst to him though very much in doing that, he was also on the way to continue in really the destruction of his own life as he continued to walk this way of wickedness and sin. Um, I wonder if any of us can identify with even just that moment in the life of Saul that you know that your sin is leading to destruction not only in your life, but you can see the impact of your sin in the lives of others. That is very much what was happening here for Saul. But then as Jesus always does in the lives of those that he changes, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in a blinding light in this particular way and literally appears to Saul and knocks Saul to the ground. This blinding light knocks him to the ground, and the voice of Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And over the next several days, as Saul met Jesus and gave his life to Jesus, Jesus saved him, and Jesus began to change his life, not just temporarily, but forever. Uh, in verse 5, there at the very beginning of chapter 9, in that part of the story, Saul asks this question. He says, who are you, Lord? Who is this voice? Who are you? And Jesus responds by answering, saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul shares this same story, the same testimony, three times in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 22, towards the end of the book, Paul gives us one extra detail. He says that, or the scripture gives us a second detail. It says that Paul asked the second question, what shall I do, Lord? Uh, the answer to these two questions, in many ways for us, are, are a simple and yet a very complete explanation of, of a life that is forever changed by Jesus. Those two questions again. Who is Jesus? There is no more important question for any person on the planet at any time in history than who is Jesus? And then secondarily, what does Jesus want me to do with my life? So let's read now as we pick up in the middle of this story, verses 19. We're going to start in the second half of verse 19 and go all the way to verse 31 and see what Saul's brand new life in Christ begins to look like immediately in the days following his conversion to saving faith in Jesus. Hear now the word of God. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Thus far, the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray together and ask God's guidance and blessing on his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and powerful. Contained within it is the message of life, eternal life, and hope. Lord, it is also a word of conviction and challenge, drawing us out of our sins and into repentance, drawing us out of death and into life. And so, Father, our eyes look to you this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to your great word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Three changes in the life of a new believer who meets Jesus this morning from this passage. The first is this, a life changed by Jesus proclaims. I'm going to compete with the Baptist this morning. I've got three key words that all begin with the letter P. Be very impressed. A life changed by Jesus proclaims. And we see this really at the beginning and towards the end of this little section of Saul's story. Saul here immediately immediately begins proclaiming the name of Jesus and starts telling people about the good news of the gospel, despite the fact that he continues to be in a hostile culture. He was the source of that hostility, but when he gave his life to Christ, there were plenty following behind him who had that same hostility, as people do today, to the good news of hope and life and salvation in Jesus. It is interesting for us to see here that the lost world around him was not unclear that Saul had given his life to Jesus. The Bible says here that they were, quote, amazed. Uh, The Greek word behind amazed here is the Greek word ecstasis, from which we get our English word ecstatic, right? Or, Or astonished. People were, their minds were blown by what they were seeing and hearing out of Paul. A question should immediately be raised in our own lives. How does our local unbelieving culture know that you, are a follower of Jesus Christ. Good social media posting? Nah. Publish your voting record? Nah. Or does the world around you, do the people around you who don't know Christ, do they know from the words that you speak and the actions that you take that your life has been forever changed by the grace and the mercy of Jesus? Uh, I would submit to you that From this passage and many others, a silent, a private, an isolated Christian is not a thing. It is not a category that our Lord Jesus gives to us uh, because if you have experienced the grace and the goodness of Jesus, you cannot help but begin to talk about what you have seen and heard in Jesus. You cannot help to begin to act differently because someone new is inside of you changing you from the inside out. Um, I have learned a number of things about people in my life thus far. One of the things that I have learned about people is that we love 
to talk about the things that we love. Yeah? It may be something that you on the other end and the receiving end of the conversation are going, I could not care less about what you are talking about. But we love to talk about the things that we love. So the question here again that the Scripture presents to us is, what do you love? Because the things that we love, we, we talk about. Paul's brand new life in Christ was first marked by evangelism, preaching, and proclaiming the Word of God. Even though he is very much a baby in the faith, he is just beginning to be discipled. He is days, he is minutes into knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The New Testament, by the way, hasn't even been written yet, and yet he cannot help but talk about Jesus. Uh, For new believers and old believers and everywhere in between believers, if you have experienced the new birth in Christ, we should be sharing our faith with others. We should be sharing about salvation in Jesus Christ. And if we are unwilling, it should make us ask a question whether the new life in Christ is really in us. When a baby is born, if they don't cry, it means something is wrong, right? They're supposed to cry. Did baby Bentley cry? Hurt first hour, right? Screaming. Letting everybody know, I'm here. It should be the same with us. When a person is born again, he or she will speak, will cry out about the goodness of Jesus in their life. Jesus' love, Jesus' kindness is on our lips. Secondly, though, Paul's brand new life in Christ was marked by a change in his actions. It wasn't just his words, it was his actions. Verse 21 says that the people asked this question, is not this the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? Well, yeah. It is him, but no, it's, it's not him anymore. It is a different, it is a brand new Saul that you are experiencing here. And this should be both incredibly obvious to us, but also incredibly mind-blowing for us to think about. Saul didn't keep killing people after he became a believer. Well, that's obvious. Yeah, it is obvious, but it should, it, think about that. Saul stopped, Okay. He didn't continue in his anger. He didn't continue in his hatred. He didn't continue in his violent ways. He turned in repentance to Jesus. He turned away from his legalism. He turned away from his self-righteousness. He turned away from his worldly self-worth, and he turned to Jesus. And so again, the question, as Scripture so often does, points the spotlight back at our own hearts, how about you? See, the reality is, is that liars who meet Jesus tend to stop lying. Wife beaters who meet Jesus tend to stop beating their wives. Corrupt businesswomen who meet Jesus tend to repent of their corruption and move to a life of honesty. If you think otherwise, let me lovingly say to you, your Jesus is too small. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. He gives us sort of the bad news of sin and the good news of new life in Christ all together. Verse 19 of chapter 5, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, as we hear the Scripture, hear the fullness of the gospel, and hear me clearly, godly living is the result of God's grace and mercy in our lives, not the catalyst for it. Proclaiming Christ is the evidence of faith, not the cause of faith. Get that? We cannot earn our salvation with good works, is what I am trying to tell you. Good works are the result of God's grace and mercy and salvation in our lives. And it also doesn't mean, as we consider the compelling nature of this text, it doesn't mean that we are perfect when we become Christians or that we never struggle or that we are never tempted ever again. Rather, that because God in His grace has brought our dead hearts to life, that our hearts now desire Christ. And we desire to be like Christ. And so there is a pattern, there's a path a new path in our lives of growing obedience and of gospel-centered, Christ-centered living take place. To go back to Saul or Paul, uh, he didn't know all that there was to know about being a Christian, right? He's a baby Christian, but he knew this. He knew who Jesus was, and that reality changed who Paul was. If you know Jesus, you know who he is, it changes the reality of who you are. Paul knew that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus is the Christ. And so those are the two things that he is declaring to this world. Formerly, he believed along with his culture that Jesus was just a man. So Jesus was dead and the disciples clearly took his dead body and they hid it away so that they could continue this fabrication and lie that Jesus somehow resurrected from the dead. But then Saul saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, alive, talking to him, and everything changed. Now he knew the truth. He had seen the risen Lord Jesus, and the truth had set him free. And if you think, well, that's not fair. I haven't seen the the living, resurrected Jesus bodily standing in front of me. Thomas raises the same objection in the Gospels, and Jesus says to him, that's great that you saw me, but blessed are those who haven't seen me and still believe. If Jesus was just a man, then his life would have been marred by sin like ours is, and his death would have been a waste. But one facet of the reality that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God, is that Jesus is perfect. He is holy. He lived the perfect life, right? Jesus never needed to hear this sermon. Jesus never needed to and never will need to repent. Jesus will never need to come to his Father and say, I'm sorry for the wrong things that I have done. Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus does then for us what we cannot do ourselves. Paul knew that Jesus was God and he knew that Jesus was and is the Christ. Meaning that Jesus, the Son of God, chose to come down to us to be our Christ. Christ is the Greek word. The Hebrew word behind it is Messiah, to be our Messiah. Both words mean Savior, He is the anointed one, literally, the one who has been called to come and do for us what we cannot do ourselves. Jesus, the Son of God, comes down, lives the perfect life, 
and then pays the penalty for my sins, for our sins on the cross, so that anyone who will place their faith and trust in Jesus and ask for the greatest exchange of all time can be saved. Lord Jesus, put my sins on your cross, and Lord Jesus, put your holy, perfect life on me. So when God the Father looks at me, he sees your perfection and opens wide the doors of, of heaven and says, enter, come in. Not only saved, you're now a member of my family. You've been adopted, you've been saved, and I've put my Holy Spirit in you so that you can begin to change, and in particular here, proclaim the name of Jesus. Number two, we're going to spend just a little bit of time on this one. We, we've talked about this significantly over our weeks through the book of Acts, so I just want to highlight it briefly. But the text brings out the reality that a life changed by Jesus perseveres. A life changed by Jesus perseveres. We see this in verses 23 through 25 and also again in verse 29 and 30 because everybody immediately hates him because he is telling people about the good news and the grace of Jesus. Here it is, the Jews in Damascus, the same city that he was converted in, he is still there, and they are immediately plotting to kill Saul. Saul needs to get out of the city, the Bible says, but his enemies were keeping essentially a 24-7 watch on the gate so that he couldn't escape, so that when they had a chance, they could kill him quietly. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, in fact, specifically that it is the governor of Damascus who is officially sanctioning this attempt to secretly murder a Christian. As usual, the government is attacking believers who speak about their faith. Saul here is under fire because he follows and he proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, but he perseveres despite those circumstances. Later on, he's going to speak and argue with the Jewish Hellenists, and they too will dislike the gospel and try to kill him. This is not a surprise to Saul, and it should not be a surprise to us when the world pushes back against you sharing your faith in Jesus. Jesus told Saul this in his conversion experience. Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus says about Saul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And this here, this scene that we're experiencing here in chapter 9 is just the beginning, as you may well know, for Saul or Paul as he follows King Jesus throughout the rest of his life. Uh, Saul will summarize his experience with persecution and suffering later on. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just a few verses away from what we just read. Listen to Paul's summary of one aspect of his life as he has chosen to follow Christ. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Okay, 40 lashes would kill you, and so they would give you 39. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And yet, Saul persevered. Why? How? Saul persevered because his eyes were on Christ. Saul persevered because he saw the love and the power of Jesus. His eyes were not on his 
circumstances and his challenges, nor were his eyes on his own ability to fix things and to solve the problems. His eyes remained on Jesus, and trusting in Jesus allowed him to persevere. Listen a few verses later, his conclusion on the matter in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is verses 9 and 10. Saul has been praying and talking to God. He's asking that God would eliminate not only the persecution, but also some type of suffering that he was experiencing in his life. He doesn't elaborate as to exactly what the suffering was. It just says, I asked God to take it away. And this is the response. But he, that is Jesus, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, when I admit freely that I cannot do it myself and I place my hope and my faith in Jesus who is strong, that is how I persevere through every circumstance. He has saved me. He is not going to let me down now. And there is nothing, including killing me, that anybody can do to separate me from the love of Jesus. Expect pushback when you talk about the grace of Jesus. Expect pushback when you tell people that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's fully God and that He's fully man. Expect pushback when you declare that Jesus is the only way to hope and life and salvation. But even as you get pushback, persevere knowing that your hope and your strength is Jesus. God's plans and His purposes are not going to be thwarted by wicked people. Zero times in the history of the world have we stopped God from doing what God desires to do. A life changed by Jesus perseveres in the strength and the power of Jesus. Third and finally, though, I want to look uh, at the remaining few verses here in this unique story here in the life of Paul. Uh, Third, a life changed by Jesus prepares. A life changed by Jesus prepares. And this one is a little bit different than the other two, but we see it very clearly in a couple different ways that are not immediately obvious to us here in the text. The Bible says uh, at the beginning of verse 23, if you look back there in your Bibles, he says, when many days had passed. So Luke is the author of Acts, and he's explaining to us this story about the life of Paul. When many days had passed, and then he goes into what, what happens next. We learn more about this space and time, this many days had passed, what's going on and how long it lasted even, from one of Paul's letters later written to the Galatians. He's reflecting back on this time. Listen again to the book of Galatians. This is chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, and Paul gives us some context. Verse 15, this is Paul speaking about Jesus. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, and remained with him 15 days. Okay, so that comment there in verse 23, when he says many days had passed, well, it's quite a few days. It was actually a three-year period that I would suggest to you was a three-year period of preparation. 
God was doing something in the life of Saul. See, this timeline teaches us that even the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, needed megatime for God to be working in him, uh, for other believers to mentor and disciple him in preparation for the work of the gospel. Um, This season here of training and of preparation didn't mean, though, that he had to wait until later to tell people about Jesus. We've already seen that. The minute he came to know Jesus, he starts telling people about Jesus. But even as he is evangelizing, God is also setting him apart for a special season of, of quality time with God and with specific believers to be grown in his faith by the work of the Holy Spirit and active discipleship, again, with other believers. Two things that we see come out of this three-year period. The first is Saul needed to spend time alone with God. Saul needed to spend some time alone with God. He went into the Arabian wilderness, says the Scripture, and the Arabian wilderness is also known as the Sinai Desert. And maybe you start clicking, oh yeah, Sinai Desert. I've heard of that in in maybe the Old Testament or even other parts of the New Testament. So he is hanging out there for three years. This is the same place where God spent 40 years preparing God's people Israel to go into the promised land. This is the same place where Elijah the prophet would be called into ministry and be prepared. This is the same place that Jesus himself would go into the Sinai Desert to spend 40 days alone with God before that moment where Satan fails to successfully tempt Jesus away from trusting in God. Jesus, as we see in the New Testament, was always getting alone to pray and spend time with his heavenly Father. If Jesus, the Son of God, needs quality time with God one-on-one, then chances are we do too, right? Jesus spends age 12 through 30, right, 18 years preparing for the three years of his earthly ministry that takes place between age 30 and 33 before his death on the cross and resurrection. The message here is clear. If you want to serve God, you must daily spend time alone with God. Let Him fill you up. The second thing that we see, though, is Saul needed time with other believers who are going to care for him, who are going to grow with him, who are going to do what I'm going to call life-on-life discipleship with him. The first that enters into his life is this guy Barnabas, who is known throughout the Scripture as the son of encouragement. Barnabas is just a great guy, you know? Everybody wants to know a Barnabas. Everybody needs a Barnabas in your church. If your church is all Barnabases, nothing ever going to get done. But man, you are going to feel great about yourself, and you are going to be praising Jesus. That's Barnabas. And Saul needed Barnabas particularly now because all the other believers basically in the known world are like, I'm not going near that guy. He kills Christians. But Barnabas has this tremendous amount of faith, and he goes and spends time with Saul. Barnabas is going to introduce Saul to both Peter and to James. Can you imagine those conversations? Oh, to have been a fly on the wall. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle James, and Barnabas just hanging out, talking theology, talking experiences with Jesus. Oh, man, that one time, you know, the fish and the loaves. Can you imagine what the conversations were like? But they're there, and they're growing together. Their conversations are about Christ, and they're growing together, and Saul is being discipled. And if you're still not convinced by my suggestion here that you need time with God and you need time with other believers to prepare, uh, consider this. 
that Jesus invites time with God and his people in order to, to fully prepare him for mission. Consider specifically, it is going to be 11 years before Paul is going to go on his first missionary journey. So Paul gives his life to Christ. This amazing moment he, he sees and he hears from Jesus. He did not turn around and go out on that missions trip. Not only is there this three-year period, but there are a total of 11 years before he goes out on that first of four missionary journeys. And when he does, he comes out of the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch was another one of the sort of church planting centers in the early Christian world. It's where Christians were first called members of the way. And that is where the Bible says that he was set apart and chosen by the Holy Spirit to begin this gospel work of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And so God was preparing him to become the greatest missionary of all time. So for us, as we think about this story and relate it to ourselves, do not despise the day of small beginnings. Do not skip the days of God's preparation, loving preparation that He has for you. Do not question God's perfect timing. He knows what He is doing. You may say, I'm ready now. He may say, no, you're not. Trust Him. Do not miss the necessity, though, of spending time with God in personal worship and consistently spending time with God's people in personal discipleship. And notice here that it's, it's about more than Paul. So, so many times we need to remember as Christians, it's about more than just me. And Luke kind of drives that home at the end of this story because uh, not only is Paul being changed, but it says that the whole church was blessed because this one believer is giving his life to Christ and growing in his faith. The entire church globally, which at this point is a small portion of the Middle East, but the whole church was blessed. It says specifically that they're now experiencing peace. Man, how great would it be to have a church worldwide experiencing peace? It says that they're being built up or, or that they're spiritually maturing. It says that they're being filled with the comfort of the Holy Spirit and that they are multiplying with new believers. And so people are becoming Christians left and right. So as you submit to Christ and trust and follow Him, it's not just about you. There is a blessing that takes place in the whole church, New City Church and the capital C Church worldwide, which is Christ's kingdom here on earth. The whole church is blessed. And so a life that is changed by Jesus is going to do at least three things. This passage is not an exhaustive list, but we see that a life that is changed by Jesus, a believer, when they give their life to Christ, they will proclaim Jesus. They will persevere through difficult circumstances by trusting in Jesus, and they will allow Jesus to continue to do the work of preparation, of discipleship in their lives. And so, for us this morning, guys, the question really is this for every single one of us, has your life been changed by Jesus. Because when you meet Jesus, when you experience His grace, and when you're forgiven of your sin, and when you're filled with the Holy Spirit at that very moment of conversion, when you're adopted into the forever family of God the Father, everything changes. You have gone from death to life. And so we began this morning with two very relevant questions. Who is Jesus, and what does He want me to do. If you're a believer this morning, I want to challenge you to look at your life. Look at it afresh and ask, is my life marked by the kind of change that only the Holy Spirit brings? If not, then take some time 
and talk with God about it. He would love to talk with you about that. Run to His mercy and His grace afresh. Ask for His power in your life afresh to repent of sin and overcome temptation in your life. But if you've never experienced new life in Jesus Christ, let me lovingly say to you, you cannot do it yourself. You cannot do this life yourself. You cannot repent of your sins yourself. You cannot make your life new yourself. You need Jesus, and the great news is He has already come through for you. The gift has been offered. All you must do is ask and receive. All you must do is nothing because He has done everything. You can do nothing on your own, but the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Call on Him today. Confess your sins and your brokenness and your failures to Him today. Ask Him to forgive you, and His answer to that question is always yes. Ask for and receive His amazing grace, and He will pour it out in abundance in your life. Cry out for forgiveness, and He will forgive you. Let today be the beginning of a changed life in Jesus. Amen? Let's take a minute and let's pray together.